0: In the name of one true God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Well, good morning, St. John's. It's good to be with y'all. Before I begin with the sermon, I wanna take a moment of personal privilege, if you'll allow me it, just to extend some heartfelt thanks and gratitude to all of you, my new St. John's family. You have made this time in my life, this time in the formal discernment process in the Episcopal Church, it's a time of really uncertainty and doubt and questioning, which is sort of good with the jives with the gospel reading today. But you've made this time in my life so incredibly warm and embracing. So I thank you for that. You know, the first time I stepped into your blessed nave, I think it was for a Stations of the Cross service during Lent on a Wednesday night, and I was met with nothing short of the overwhelming love of Christ. That is all I have seen from y'all, is the love of God. I want you to know that. I hope you know that. Thank you. Now, on to the sermon, as it were. When my friend over here, the good Reverend Chase Ackerman, when we met back in February to discuss logistics for my internship, we had to settle on a date for me to do some preaching. Now, there's no dearth of preachers here at St. John's. Y'all have got three clergy. So I sort of just had to get in where I could fit in, right? So when he asked me if I would like to preach on the 16th of April, I obliged. But then I realized that date was the Sunday after Easter Sunday. This is historically one of the most poorly attended services of the church year. (laughs) And yet, and yet, here y'all all are. Thanks be to God. As many of you may already know, this day, the second Sunday of Easter, is sometimes colloquially referred to as Low Sunday. It's a day in which the church, I guess, settles down from the great festal jubilation of Easter Day. There's no festal Eucharist, no gorgeous flowers adorning this pulpit, not even any on the altar, but that's just a coincidence, and no incense either, much to all of our chagrin, I'm sure. (laughs) Today, the church supposedly takes a recovery weekend from the great marathon of Holy Week, but today's continuation of the Easter story in John's Gospel is just as important, if not more, than where we began last Sunday, and that's where we pick up today. The narrative continues from that resurrection morning in the evening of that resurrection day with Jesus appearing to 10 of the 11 disciples after having appeared to Mary Magdalene early that morning. When Thomas was first informed by his friends of the appearance of the risen Christ to to them during his absence, he was understandably a bit incredulous about it all. Unless I see the mark of the nails in his hands and put my finger in the mark of the nails, says Thomas, I will not believe. Thomas wanted or needed, rather, the same proof his friends had been shown. So alas, eight days later, Jesus appears to all of them, the risen Christ, through locked doors miraculously and presents his wounded hands and his pierced side to them. And he says to them, do not be faithless, but believing. And it's here we have Thomas making the greatest and grandest confession of faith in Jesus by exclaiming, my Lord and my God. It's no mistake that John the Evangelist strategically brought his gospel to a climax with this story of unbelief transformed to belief. This is historically where we believe John's gospel originally ended. Sometimes I think it's too easy for us to focus solely on the fact of Thomas's unbelief here rather than looking at the direct way in which he presented his worries and troubles to Jesus, face to face, head on. His posture wasn't to avoid or suppress them, hoping they would just miraculously disappear. But he took them straight to Jesus, being honest, expressing his difficulty with faith. And notice here how Jesus responds to him. Jesus does not hesitate to give Thomas what he needs so that he's able to believe in him. Beloved, I'm here to tell you that this is the very same gentle Jesus which interacts with us today, inviting us to bring our worries, our fears, our doubts directly to him. Last month, I attended what's called the Vocari Pilgrimage at Camp McDowell. Some of you may be familiar with that. It's sort of, I guess, best described as like a mini Curcio for like college students for us to discern our callings. And during my time there, I was gifted with perhaps one of the profoundest statements I've ever heard while talking to one of our chaplains. Suffice to say that I made sure to write it down for the sermon so I would remember it. That statement he gifted me with is, doubt is the very evidence of an underlying faith. I want to say that again. Doubt is the very evidence of an underlying faith. In order to doubt something, to question it, it has to exist first, even if it is just a little mustard seed of faith. And for that fact, doubt is not this disgraceful thing it has been overstigmatized to be in Christianity. Frederick Buechner once wrote that, quote, Doubts are the ants in the pants of faith. It keeps it alive and moving, end quote. Y'all, anything worth devoting our entire lives to, any person worth devoting our entire lives to, sometimes merits an occasional question or two. Because we all know of these religious folks who are so overly confident in their convictions that they feel the need to shove them down other's throats. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) They simply have no room for uncertainty, for wondering. And that's why I sometimes feel that a more apt adjective for Thomas may not have been doubting Thomas, but wondering Thomas. Being in this time of formal discernment for me has been just that, a suspension of certainty, a time of wondering and a trust in God that he will take me where I need to go. I'm certain there are many wonderers or doubters like Thomas in this nave. I know I count myself as one, probably several times a week if I'm honest. Because believing in a God of resurrection is sometimes difficult in this weary world. In this world of school shootings, cancer diagnoses, church massacres, and frankly the list is unending. Finding meaning and hope amidst such anguish is hard. But this is precisely why we need one another. Because while we may not have seen the risen Jesus like Thomas and the disciples, we can see the fruits of his love in us. We know that if we love each other, God lives in us. Beloved, the Easter story continues in our lives and through our witnesses. I understand this is an inconvenient mechanism, relying on the witnesses of others. But it is what we have been gifted with, and it's really what makes our faith possible. Every encounter with Jesus is going to be different, as evidence between the different encounters with Mary Magdalene and Doubting Thomas. For some, believing comes easy, and that's wonderful. That's awesome. Thanks be to God. For others, believing looks like dirt underneath their fingernails from digging relentlessly for evidence. And all of it is holy to God. You know, I recently read a book for my shepherding group entitled Christianity After Religion by the sociologist Diana Butler Bass. It was recommended by Mother Sarah Watts, and I commend it to all of you if you've never read it. In the chapter dedicated to believing, Bass explored how believing in the context of Christian faith has morphed over time into a mere intellectual assent, an intellectual opinion. Originally though, when Christianity first began, Believing was more about devoting one's entire life to Christ rather than just thinking that devotion to Christ was a good thing to do. This is, after all, why the Jesus movement in the Acts of the Apostles was called the way, the way of Jesus. It's a way of being and a way of living in the world with the boldness of God's love. I imagine we're all, especially those who are recovering from other denominations, probably familiar with that verse from earlier on in John's gospel in the third chapter. For God so loved the world that whosoever believeth in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Well, according to Butler Bass, a more accurate rendering of that translation reads something like everyone who trusts in Jesus or everyone who directs his or her heart towards Jesus will inherit eternal life. And I think this distinction is a crucial one to make. In ancient times, y'all, belief was about a disposition of our heart. It was more like a marriage vow, an I do, a commitment of loyalty to God's will, far deeper than just an opinion about God. But I do want to be very clear here. I'm not saying that believing that Jesus was who he said he was is not important. That's not what I'm saying. I think Jesus makes that abundantly clear, not only in John's gospel, but throughout the gospels. I just feel that the order is important, that being the light of the world ranks higher in importance in our daily Christian mission. After all, our intellectual opinions don't really help anybody, do they? They don't feed the hungry. They don't clothe the naked. They don't heal the sick. That's why it's also important to understand what believing in Jesus looks like in practice. Bass quoted this Canadian professor who goes by the name of Wilfred Kentwell Smith, that's a mouthful, who once wrote that the affirmation, I believe in God, used to mean something like, given the reality of God as a fact of the universe, I hereby pledge to him my heart and soul. I committedly opt to live in loyalty to him. So today, in the 21st century, we take that same phrase, I believe in God, we look at it through our lens of what believing looks like, it reads something like this. Given the uncertainty as to whether there is a God or not, I announce that my opinion is yes. I judge God to be existent. Those are very two different ways of looking at what belief really means, wouldn't you agree? And my friends, faith is not just a way of thinking, but a way of life. We're not meant to just preach good news, but be good news people. Because doing the work of loving people like Jesus loved us is not the same thing as believing that loving your neighbor is the right thing to do. One of my favorite theologians, Father Richard Rohr, often says that we do not think ourselves into new ways of living, but we live ourselves into new ways of thinking. So, what are we wonderers and doubters left to do? How do we, like the disciples, beg our Lord to help our unbelief? I think the answer can partly lie in that saying, keep the faith our Roman Catholic brothers and sisters really do get it right for once (laughs) when they use the adjective practicing to describe their faith. I'm a practicing Catholic. You ever heard anybody say I'm a practicing Episcopalian? I think not. (laughs) But Christianity is just that. It's a daily practice, y'all. None of us presume or suppose that we're perfect or even great at it. But that's where the love and grace of God and the generosity and support of others comes into the picture. It's why we belong to a community of seekers, trying our best to follow the same Lord, the same path, the same God. As many of you maybe know, one of my church communities that I call home, in addition to St. John's now, is Trinity Church in Florence. We have this brilliant rector whom most of you already know by the name of the Reverend Doctor Callie Plunkett Bruton, though she would immediately insist you just call her Callie. (laughs) I bring this up because Callie's... Sermons over time have developed somewhat of a spine to them. So much so that one particular sermon point has become the unofficial motto of Trinity Parish, even making it onto the back of the Trinity t shirt. That's when it's official. (laughs) I think it offers a simple guide as to what we're supposed to do and what Jesus beckons us to do in our times of unbelief. The motto says that we are to pray, we are to trust and we are to simply do the next right thing in front of us. Pray, trust, do the next right thing. The believing part may come last and that's okay because being and doing shapes our faith. Keep seeking out those Kingdom of God moments, my friends, and we'll all be amazed at the inspiration and the immeasurable grace that will follow. In case you haven't heard it today, in case you haven't felt it today, in case you haven't believed it today. God loves you, all of you, no exceptions. God invites us to bring all of our doubts, all of our questions to him, so that we may deepen our faith. He then gives us his Holy Spirit to sustain us, to do the work that he is sending us to do in the world. In these words, beloved, listen to the Lord Jesus, blessing all of us through the ages who still keep the faith. Jesus said to Thomas have you believed because you have seen me blessed are those who have not seen and yet have come to believe this is us Jesus is speaking to 2000 years later and we still believe though we have not seen him thanks be to God for that I think the last verse of our epistle text in first Peter encapsulates the nature of our lives of faith quite well. Although we have not seen him, we love him. And even though we do not see him now, we believe in him and rejoice with an indescribable and glorious joy, for we are receiving the outcome of our faith, the salvation of our souls. May it always be so, amen.